Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer of the show, Colin Morgan, and today we have a special guest, Jason Swank. Now, for our longtime listeners, you might remember Jason from episode six, where he shared the unfortunate experience of being taken advantage of when selling his marketing agency. Now, if you haven't heard his first episode, I'll be sure to share a link over in his episode page at builttosell.com. But since then, he's transitioned into the role of an acquirer, successfully purchasing nine agencies. Drawing from his unique journey on both sides of the negotiation table, Jason will uncover valuable insights on how to sell your marketing agency. Get ready to tackle the tough questions acquirers ask. Master the art of structuring your earnout. Navigate retrading, plus so much more. If you own a service-based business, make sure to have something to take notes with as Jason is here to deliver a masterclass on selling your service business. Without further ado, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Jason Swank. Enjoy. Jason Swank, welcome back to Built to Sell Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me on, John. You are, I think, one of only two or three people that have come on twice. So you must be smart. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I win. I tricked I you, I guess. That's why. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you tricked me. I would encourage folks to go back and listen to episode number six of Built to Sell Radio. Was it number six? About, yeah, you were number six. Yeah. Wow. Uh, back uh, in 2015. So um, folks can listen to that and hear your story and what it was like to build and sell an agency. We've decided to focus our talk today about your new role, which is to find businesses to buy. Maybe walk through how you got into that role. It was by accident, like everything else, right? Like, uh, you know, after I sold the agency, a lot of agency owners would reach out to me, be like, hey, how'd you do this? How'd you do that? And I started helping them out. And then, uh, you know, that's been a decade. I've been doing that a decade now, um, which is crazy how time flies. Like I sold the agency in 11, 2011. Right. And even thinking about when came on your show in 15. Um, And so as we were building all these agencies and really taking their kind of their pain and their challenges and turning them into an asset, a lot of them were like, hey, I want to sell. And then I had a lot of people reaching out and were like, hey, I want to create another. I want to create an agency with you that buys other agencies um, and do does it a different way, not like the. BS roll up that happens a lot in the industry. And uh, so about three years ago, we started an agency called Republics. Uh, We've bought nine agencies um, and all the agencies are over the million in EBITDA. Um, And so there's a lot of different criteria that we look for. And uh, yeah, it's been exciting. It's been a big learning lesson. Uh, It hasn't been as easy as you know, everyone has thought either. So talk a little bit about the criteria you look for in an agency to acquire. You mentioned a million dollars of EBITDA. What else do you look for? So there's a couple different elements, right? Like, you know, the, the first is, is like, do they have a clear path of where they want to go? Right. There's a lot of businesses that can be built by accident and then they hit a plateau. 
Um, but do they know where they want to go? And most importantly, does their team know where they're going? Right? Like, think about it. If the owner's on a boat and he's driving the ship, he's and he doesn't tell anybody else where the ship is going, right? Like he has to do all the course corrections. He can never, you know, go sleep, right? So we want to make sure we're buying a business that can operate without the owner. Because most of the time, right, <clears throat> the owner's been doing this for a long time. They're the worst employees ever. <laughs> So you're looking for a company with at least a million dollars of EBITDA where the team understands the direction and the owner has a vision for how they're all going to get there and has shared that vision. Exactly. Uh, just a couple follow-on questions. Why a million in EBITDA? Well, I feel that we've seen anything under a million in EBITDA, their valuation is like they haven't really kind of crested that next level. Right. I always looked at valuing an agency or a service based business is really like anything under a million in EBITDA, you're around one to two X. Times EBITDA. Times EBITDA, not times top line revenue. I think that's the biggest misconception, right? Like a lot of people think, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a million dollar business and I'm worth five million. I'm like, no, you're not, unless that was your profit. <laughs> um, and then also, too, you, you got to, kind of factor in, you know, if the owner's barely paying themselves, right? Like, well, we have to bring in a CEO, right? Like what we do at, at, at this agency is we want that business to run independently. We will support it, but we want them to keep running. Like we don't want to change their name. We don't want to change their services. We don't want to change their staff, like especially in the very beginning. And we want the owners to stay and have a sense of ownership because they do, right? And um, so we don't, a lot of people come in, they change the name, they change everything, and then it's kind of the wild, wild west, right? So you want to keep the business, it's successful, it's gotten to a million dollars of EBITDA, you don't want to screw that up. No, So you, you, you're looking for a million dollars in EBITDA, that makes sense. How do you, we'll talk about due diligence in a moment, but how do you on the front end, you mentioned that, does the owner have a vision and does their team know what they're doing and where they're going? How do you evaluate the team's knowledge of the owner's vision? Well, I look at kind of the operations of the agency. Like, is the owner in sales? Is the owner doing marketing? Is the owner still in financing? Is the owner still in operations? Talk, or are they talking to the employees, right? That will tell me um, if they can you know, operate without the owner. And then I'll, also, I'll flat out ask, what is your role? What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? And if they say, you know, like what I'm looking for is kind of like five roles. Um, and I kind of look for it as in the very beginning, as you're building a business, you're kind of the owner, right? You're doing everything. And then when you can get to the agency CEO, it's different. So the first one we've already covered, set the vision, communicate it to the team. Second one is coach and mentor your leadership team only. If everyone's reporting to you, that's a telltale sign that you haven't created leaders in your company to help and they don't know that direction or you're holding them back. I also want them to be the face of the organization. I know when you, I had you on our podcast on the Smart Agency Masterclass, right? Like we were kind of, we had a healthy debate. Like I think yeah. 
they should be the face. Um, and I think they still can sell. And, and I guess that fits more of our model too, because like we want them to keep operating. Right. So that makes that right. I can see both sides, but I also want them building key relationships and understand the KPIs. And those are the roles. KPI stands for, right. what does KPI stand for? Uh, key performance indicators. Sorry, I'm, tech, I'm, I'm talking tech jargon, which I always tell people not to. No, right? no, it's good. I just want to make sure everybody's <laughs> coming along with us for the ride. So cool. So you want them to understand their KPIs yeah. and their team's KPIs. Exactly. You mentioned there were five things. So I think we covered three or four. Was so a set the vision, communicate it often, uh, be the face of the organization, coach and mentor the leadership team, understand the financials and build key relationships. Got it. That's super helpful. Yep. What's a typical deal structure look like for, for you guys? Yeah. So um, we'll come in and we'll do half cash. Okay. Because we, we're looking for people that want to build something bigger, but also take some chips off the table. And that's always nice, right? So you think about some of these businesses have been around for five, 10, maybe, maybe 15 years, right? They're like, I, I want to put some more money in my pocket, but they should also be putting money in their pocket over the years too, right? If they're not paying themselves really well, that's a red flag. <laughs> um, but we'll pay them half in cash. And then the other half will be in, um, in equity. Um, and then we'll have some earnout in there. And here's what we do too with the earnout. So like, for example, John, if I go to you, I, I want to buy you and I'm going to give you a valuation of 5 million. And then the typical uh, seller is going to be like, well, this next year, I'm going to be worth, you know, whatever, because we're going to do X. And they, they put their, their performance not way out there, which they're shooting themselves in the foot too, by the way. But we do it a little bit different because like I told you on, on the episode six, when I was on, I got screwed by the earnout. Still did really well, but got screwed. We will not put a time frame on the earnout. So if you think you're going to double, whenever you double, perfect. Then you'll get that money. If it takes five years, perfect. That's whatever it is. But what we're also hoping too is when we put two plus two equals together, we're hoping it equals eight because we're going to come in with a lot of firepower of all our other clients, all the systems and the strategies that we have. So we're not just looking to acquire your million in EBITDA. We're looking to take that and quadruple it. So then, you know, whenever we do go public or we do sell that other two and a half million, if we give you a $5 million valuation, hopefully that's worth 20 million. But what I also tell people is there's no guarantee. There's just not. So you got to be happy with the cash you get up front. Got it. So Again, deal structure would typically be 50% cash, 50% equity. And, and the equity, are they rolling that into their agency? No, the whole, the, uh, the mothership. So all of The it. Republic as a, as a mothership. Yeah. Okay. So they would get shares in Republic. How is Republic valued? Like what multiple of EBITDA do you use to value Republic? We're, we're on a 10X multiple now because we're over the eight figures in EBITDA. Got it. So you use for the purposes of, de of, of describing or, or, or quantifying the value of the equity, you're saying, look, Republics were 10x because we're giants and, and, yeah. and we'll get a premium. Uh, what would the typical range be that you would be 
paying for agency. I'm sure it varies based on digital versus traditional and so forth. But can, just give me a broad range of multiples. I mean, anywhere from four to eight X. Got it. Eight X being eight times EBITDA. Correct. Got it. Four to, t- four to eight. And they would EBITDA. have to be significantly higher than the million in EBITDA. To get on the, on the, high on the end. higher end. Yes. Got it. So and, if end, if- and if they're more specialized too, right? The more I always tell people, the more niched you are, the more spe- more that you're the specialist, the more your valuation is going to go up. I talk to you know business brokers all the time, and they're like, they'll tell me, "Oh, I got a six x, I got an eight x, hell, I got a ten x on something." I was like, "Man, that's fantastic." Um, so, yeah, it's a really good point. It's like cable television; we we will pay more per channel if we can just cherry pick the specialty, and so. Yes. You're bringing up a great point. So like a, a very highly niched, you know, they just do LinkedIn ads as an example. Uh, I don't know if anybody just does LinkedIn ads, but if that was all they did, they would have the corner, like they would have a, a tremendous amount of domain expertise in LinkedIn advertising and that would garner you a premium. Whereas if you're just a general marketing agency, brochures one day, yep. posters the next, you're getting a, on the lower end of that valuation. That's super helpful. And then in terms of the earnout piece, would that be over and above the four to eight yes, X? Over and above. Okay. That is that is only for the people that go, well, I don't want to sell now, I'll sell next year. And I'll be like, well, this is a good deal. Like, but if you value your company at this, let's put the rest in earnout. But then that has to still provide us the return that we want, right? Because if we can help you grow and help you get there, it's a win-win. Right. Like I always hate the deals that are just a win on one side. Um, I don't want someone to just have to say, oh, I won as a seller. Well, then the buyer is going to have a bad taste in their mouth or the buyer wins. Well, the seller is going to be like, screw you. I'm out of here. Right. So, you know, we've always tried to make it work right down the middle. It's not perfect all the time, but that's what we've seen. Got it. And then for Republic, all the deals virtually by definition are accretive. Because you're buying for between four and eight and valuing Republic at 10x mm-hmm. EBITDA. What is the long-term plan for Republics? You mentioned the possibility of potentially going public. Have you guys got a vision for where, you know, where what your exit strategy would look yep. like? And that's a great question because I always tell, you know, the the people getting acquired too is like, here's our long-term vision. So here's how you can get the rest of the money. Um, right. Because if someone never in, in plans to sell or go public, well, you're just selling your business for half off. Um, but I also tell people, really, most no one's going to give you 100% cash unless you have something really amazing and multiple people are going after. Um, so our plan is to go public or, or sell ourselves. Um, that's, that's the goal. Um, the time frame has gotten pu- pushed back a little bit more. Um, it hasn't been as fast as we want, but you know, when you're, when you're, you know, integrating nine different businesses together, it's, it's more challenging and you don't get the multiples right off the bat. You got to show that all the businesses are integrated together. You just can't say, Hey, I bought nine businesses at 9 million and we're, you know, 9 million in EBITDA and get a huge multiple. Like you have to make sure it it all functions. I'm glad you brought in integration because that's sort of the, 
I don't know how I would describe it, but it's sort of the criticism of the agency roll-up model. Because oftentimes, if it's an Omnicom or whatever the, the big holding company pitches, it's like, hey, we own all these brands. We've got all these clients. We've got all these specialists. You join our network and and we're going to you know introduce you to all of our clients and we're going to have this broad you know bench of guys you happen. can work with. <laughs> And it never happens because, of course, the, everybody's on an earnout. Everybody's trying to make their nut, and they view every other agency owner as a competitor. And so, none of the synergies kind of ever come to fruition. And as a result, it's sort of like this this uh, yeah. you know, vaporware, if you will. Yeah. You talk about integrations. How do you make that real? I mean. It it takes a whole team to do it. You just can't say, oh, well, the CEO is going to lead this part, right? Like you have to have a specific team. And that's kind of been our challenge a little bit of like, you have to bring in someone with that experience in the past that have done this rather than just someone that has run a big business in the past. Because it's very different figuring out all those moving pieces. Um, but one of the things I'll, I'll tell you guys, or I'll, I'll tell you about especially anybody thinking of selling, I want you to do this because someone told me this that I wish I did for my earnout. So when a business takes you over, right, they take over everything. So they make the decisions. Um, and so they can hinder you. Like the business that bought us, uh, my first agency, hindered me from hitting my earnout. But if I could go back over and do it again, what I would do is this. I would say, we're in total control of the agency. We make all the decisions up until the point I hit the earnout. When I hit the earnout, then you make all the decisions. Now, and then if they don't let me do that, I get the company back and I keep the cash in the very beginning. That's the deal I would work out. Is that the deal you offer Republic? No, I wish we did. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be a pretty good deal for the entrepreneur, mm -hmm. but it would it, it would give uh, control over the kind of decision-making. Yeah, yeah. So you, you raise decision-making and it's an interesting one because of course that's the, you know, the, the folks have to get super comfortable with the idea that if they sell, they're becoming a minority shareholder in Republic. They are. And, and as a minority shareholder, you get certain rights, but you certainly would not have, uh, you know, specific, like, all the decision-making authority that you would have if you yep. own the company outright. Yep. So how do you structure the decision-making tree? Like, is there a threshold beyond which like a budget threshold where they, they need to go to Republic's board to get approval or like, how do, how do you structure those decision-making uh, kind of forks in the road? Well, in the first couple of months, we want them to keep making decisions like nothing changed. Right. And mm -hmm. the, the cool thing that we do is we don't tell any of their clients for six months either that they were bought. <laughs> Right. Because what do you think? As soon as you're bought, you're like, shit, man, I really like this service. And now it's going to go to the crapper. Um, so we want to be able to reach out to them, you know, six months later and going, hey, um, just to let you know, we were how's service. Oh, man, it's better than ever. Cool. Well, we were sold six months ago. OK, good. I'm I'm happy. Right. Uh, versus like we were sold. Oh, crap. We need to find a vendor. And then like a mass exodus. Um, the other thing, too, I'll I'll, I'll Tell your listeners, I'm just thinking of it now. Make sure you have a buy sell uh, clause or um, a sell clause for your clients because most agencies we buy are an asset purchase. And so we're buying your contracts. 
Well, if there's if you have Coca-Cola, LegalZoom, Porsche, Hitachi, which we had, right? If I didn't have you know the buy sell clause and I was getting bought by an asset purchase, I'd have to go to them saying, Hey, LegalZoom, I'm about to be sold. I need you to sign this so I can transfer this agreement over. Right. So that's a big deal to make sure you guys have that in place. That's one of the elements yeah. we're looking for too. Yeah, it's a huge point. It's one of those sort of like plumbing type of parts of selling a business that you never really think about. Um, I've heard it referred to by lawyers as a survivability clause, meaning simply that the obligations of the contracts you have with your clients survive the change of ownership of your agency. And this doesn't just belong to agencies. Of course, this would be the same in virtually any business with long-term contracts. And neither... Well, I certainly can speak for myself. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not sure nope. that you are either. Nope, not at all. I don't think nope. either. Of us have got law school. Are you kidding me? Um, I, I but, played but, a lawyer in something, right? I yeah, played a lawyer in yeah. video. So don't take legal advice from us, but do talk to your lawyer about structuring your agreements to ensure that in the event you do sell your company at some point in the future, there is that survivability clause, meaning that your clients can't wiggle out of their obligations to you because you sold your company. Yes. So that's a, that's a big, that's a big for sure. Really insightful. And I, I think an important piece. Talk about the personalities here. So, you know, I know, you know, a lot of agency owners. Um, what is their Achilles heel when it comes to this conversation? Um, how do they shoot themselves in the foot when you first kind of rock up and say, have you ever thought about selling your agency? Well, I mean, we're not trying to convince anybody, right? So like if, if I go to them, uh, most of the time they're coming to me and they're saying, hey, Jason, you know, I think I might be ready to sell. And honestly, some of my partners get mad at me and I go to them, I go, after they walk me through everything, I'm like, why do you want to sell, man? Like you're making a million dollars. You're not working much. Your team's making the decisions. What am I missing? And like, I talk them out of it and they're like, oh, thanks. Right. Cause I always promised myself after I sold, cause I was given very bad advice when I sold. I was like, I am going to always be honest with people. I don't care how much money I could actually make from something. Right. I'm not going to make a decision based on money. It's kind of like that. Uh, one of my favorite movies is Moneyball. Right. Like he's like, mm, he didn't take that job for the GM. He's like, look, I, I made a decision on money one time. I'm not going to do it again. And so a lot of times I talk people out of it. And I only believe that you should sell if you're just completely done, right? Um, or you need the money for medical, or you know exactly what you want to do next, right? Like when I sold, I didn't, I was like, I don't have to do anything ever again. Like, I'm just going to sit on the beach. Well, that lasts for about three months. And then you're like, I'm freaking bored. Right. Like I even got like for my particular business agency, Mastery 360, we got offered seven million dollars to sell. And I was like, I thought about it. And then I'm like, what am I going to do after? I, I love doing this. Right. Like, no, I don't want to do it. So, you know, like you have to ha make sure you have a plan for what you want to do um, and just don't set a time frame. Right. Like. I think a lot of people do that as a mistake going, I'll sell in five years. Well, you don't know where the market is. You don't know where you're going to be. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. It, it's the, uh, it's the, the age old, you know, I'll say it's oftentimes tied to like a birthday or a kid's graduation. Oh. It's like when, you know, when, when I turn 50, 60, 70, whatever I'm going to sell, yeah. but, uh, 
But yeah, more so when you're completely done. And let me push back on that, Jason, a little bit and, and let's riff a little bit. If, if I am completely done and yeah, I just want out, I get it. I understand that. And at the same time, aren't I basically going into my earnout, basically fatigued, ensuring that I won't hit it? Correct. Correct. You are. Um, unless you're just, and that's kind of why I talk a lot of people out. Like there's always like, there's two sides of every story, right? Like my job is to find out why do you really want to sell? What's the real reason? Your job is to find out what's the real reason why you want to buy me? Like what's, where do you value us the most? Like when we got bought, um, you know, years back, you know, I thought they were just buying us, you know, for some of our technology. They were just buying us for revenue. If I knew that, I could have got, you know, even more, right? Um, so you just got to kind of be investigators. Uh, and then, you know, when you're burned out, like I always ask people, when you're burned out, if you could solve it, would you still sell? Right. And then the other question I think a lot of the audience needs to ask or, or ask themselves is if someone, because this would tell you, because you know all the skeletons in your guy's closet. If, if your best friend or if you were going to buy your agency tomorrow, what would you change today? That's it. Right. And if you could fix it, then would you still sell? And what do you do with the answers to those questions? That's up to everyone. I, I can't tell you that. Like, <laughs> you know, um, but I think, you know, like I go back to because I remember I got to a point where I wanted to sell. Hell, I even got to a point where I didn't even want to sell. I wanted to close up shop. We were like two million in revenue. And I literally started interviewing for jobs. That's how miserable I was because I didn't see a solution. And I didn't think the agency was worth anything at that, even though it was. And I remember I, uh, someone asked me a question, what do you want to do every day? What don't you ever want to do ever again? And I just took some time and I answered that. I literally, like one of the exercises that I tell people to do now is like, get a sheet of paper, like eight and a half by 11, put your fist over it, draw a circle around it, spend about a half hour on all the crap you never want to do and write outside the circle. And then inside the circle, write down all the, the, the stuff you like. And then that will lead to the things that you need to do in order to change the agency to make it work for you that, or, or the business to work for you. Yeah, well said, for sure. So I want to go back to the actual personalities and the, the, the selling process. So you meet an entrepreneur. I want to go through what they say and what you as an experienced buyer hears. Yeah. So I'll, I'll ask them, uh, like, well, how do you get your clients? And if they're like referrals, like, okay, referrals aren't scalable. Like you don't have a system, you know, in place. That's uh, what's going, that's the talk track in your mind. Exactly. Okay, what else? Exactly. Um, I'll look at kind of, you know, what channels they have. Because what I'm thinking about, I'm looking about how can I multiply or add on to what they have? So if they have a good inbound channel, I'm going to be like, man, if I create more lead magnets, can I get more leads? Or if they have a good outbound channel, cool. Can I hire more salespeople and then get more sales? Or if they're going to like have more, if they have 
all their business coming from strategic partners. Cool. Can I get more strategic partners? Like I'm trying to think about how can I scale this business for the things that they are not able to see, right? So then I'm valuing them more, but they're still probably valuing themselves at or whatever. I'm also looking at, do they have predictable revenue? Okay. So I'll be like, are you more project-based or how long, what's your churn rate? How long are you keeping your clients? Because I'm trying to think, all right. And then I'm also also asking them, are they upselling their clients? How often are they upselling their clients? Like how often are people coming in at X and leaving or like building to Y and Z and all this? Because I'm constantly looking at that. Um, What other things are... Going back to recurring revenue, if you ask the question, you know, like... uh, uh, how would you, what question would you ask to ascertain whether they have recurring revenue or not? Well, I would just say, um, what's your monthly recurring revenue? Got it. And, and if I said to you something like, well, we don't really have recurring revenue, but you know, our clients come back all the time. So like, I guess that's kind of recurring revenue. Well, I, then I would ask, well, what's the, you know, how often are they coming back? Where did they start? Show me like, I'm asking them, like, show me. All right, uh, pick a client. All right, tell me the story of this. And if they're like, well, they're, and if they're coming back to you just as order takers, like you're the order taker, that's a red flag. I, we want to buy people that are, their clients are viewing them as the advisor, the trusted advisor, right? Like uh, anybody can just do a service, but our, what we're wanting is, the agencies and the businesses that get paid the most are the ones that solve the biggest problems the fastest. And so we want our clients to always come to us with a problem. Even if we can't solve it, well, that on that particular one, we'll be able to you know, point them in the right direction. But that means then they, we're, we're their trusted partner. And then that means we have stickiness going forward. Yeah, well said. So, you asked the question, why do you want to sell? I want to hear from you the tantalizing answer. The answer is like, yes, I am all in on this guy or gal. I want to buy their business. And then the flip side, what is the death knell answer to that question? What I'm looking for, yeah, what I'm looking yeah. for is I'd like to take some chips off the table um, and be a part of something bigger. I feel like I've probably maxed out where we're going because everyone maxes out at a plateau. But what they don't realize is there's two solutions to that. And they're both who, who, two, two who's. It sounds like what the, um, what's that? Dr. Uh, Zeus. The who, who bill, right? Yeah, yeah, Dr. Zeus. Yeah. That's it, Dr. Yeah. Zeus. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. Um, but there's two who's. Who do I need to hire in order to get us above this plateau? Or maybe who needs to be acquiring us? But the best question of the who is, who do I need to become? We always keep, like, when I sold the first agency, I, I was that person. I reached the plateau. But looking back, I'm like, holy cow. Like, I've become, the, the who I've become is well above that. I could have taken that company way bigger, 10 times bigger. And then I would have hit another plateau. And then I have to ask my question, who do I need to become? Um, so. That's usually what I'm looking for. The red flag is, is just like, I'm just done. I just don't want it anymore. Well, why don't you want it anymore? 
well, it's a, it's amazing business. Like, and you could take it to whatever I'm like, well, what am I missing? Right? Like, you're not telling me like, we want someone to be a part of it and to put some skin in the game too, right? Because we're putting some skin in the game. We're putting a lot of skin in the game, especially we value at $5 million and we give you two and a half million in cash. So. Yeah. Yeah. Just be curious. You mentioned red flags, like I'm done to the answer to the question, sort of why do you want to sell? What other red flags do you look for in the process of, of courting a potential owner candidate? The business is really dependent on the owner, right? Because they don't have the right operators. And you, you look at it of going, um, Oh, what's an example? Let's say I go to, um, and this goes back to the questions that I ask around like, well, who does sales? Oh, I do. Okay. Uh, who does account management? I do. Oh, you've created an amazing job for yourself, but you haven't created a business. Um, and then a lot of businesses will try to bring in operators and here's a telltale sign to tell if it's a good operator or bad operator. A bad operator will create more work for your team and you. Right? They'll be like, oh, you have five systems? Oh, I got to create eight systems because more is greater. No, 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 no. A good operator will give you the freedom. Right? The good operator will take the five systems and turn it into two and give you way more time to work on the stuff going back to the five roles I told you about. Um, so it's really, and I'm also looking at their culture. Culture fit is a huge, right? Like I've always led with, you know, my core values first. And then, so like, for example, um, this, this, this happened. Uh, one of my core values is being resourceful or cheap, <laughs> right? Uh, another, one man's resourceful is another man's. There you go. Right? <laughs> so I remember one time I was hiring uh, this employee from this huge agency. And, uh, I was like, man, if we can hire this one employee, we'll turn into this big agency. Well, this person was like in office space, like literally like take this paperwork to here, to here, to here. like, and they had all these people, like all these different TPS reports and nothing was getting done. And they were used to like, if they were going to do a pitch, well, he had someone doing the deck. He had someone doing the prep work. They had someone doing the outreach, all this. I'm like, shit, man, like we don't have any of that. Like be resourceful. Like so many got in. So like, you got to make sure your core values, you know, of the acquirer and also the, you know, the, the seller match up. Uh, Cause if it doesn't, it's going to be a total train wreck. But did they ever match up? I mean, core values. I think so. Right. Are very idiosyncratic. They're very specific to that agency. Well, like resourceful is a unique, well, that's a unique Core value. Correct. And we won't buy anybody that's not resourceful, right? Like we want people thinking as like, like think of like Steve Jobs at Apple, right? They had no committees, right? So if, was he going to buy a company that had, was like driven by committees? Like that would be a total train wreck. Or um, if people didn't want to share wins or share their failures, well, that means that people are hiding stuff, right? And then people aren't learning or people are looking at losing as, not an opportunity or a lesson, right? So, and it, we're not just going, do you match up on these core values, right? Like we'll start asking questions around, like tell us stories around, you know, something around this and, you know, um, and we'll, we'll figure it out. Or 
would we want to hang out with this person in our house? I mean, that's when I have people at my events or like when we're looking at my, like, if I don't want to hang out with this person, it's going to be a complete train wreck. <laughs> I want to dig in a little bit more on the core value thing. Cause there are some people that take a very dogmatic view of core values They're you know, they're, very, very almost religious in their fervor over core values. Uh, I'm assuming Republics has core values. They do. Yes. Okay. And most of the agencies that I'm guessing you interact with have some core values. They've had the retreat where they, you know, some of them do very bland ones like teamwork and discipline. And others are more thoughtful about it, but most of them have, have, you know, they've read Jim Collins book and they've kind of done a little bit of work around it. When you when Republic acquires a business, from what I've heard, you want them to run independently. You don't mm-hmm. want them to just become a division of Republics. You want them to kind of mm-hmm. keep what made them special. Are they expected to adopt Republic's core values as well as their own? No. Or are they expected to keep theirs? It's more about all right. So if if Republics has 10 core values and the, the, people, the people that we're buying have 10 core values, do they need to match up perfectly? No. What we're looking for is on the general overview, do they believe in what we believe in? And do they believe in the vision where we want to go? And do they believe in treating people the way we want to be treated? That's really it. Because you could say resourceful or cheap, that could be two, two different things to do two different people, right? But, you know, we're, I'm looking for people that are like, I want to do more with less. You know, I, I, I take great pride in that uh, versus like, let me see how much shit I can delegate to this person. <laughs> right. Got it. You know, the notion of competition is an interesting one in, in the buying and selling of a company. Because as an entrepreneur, most founders want to create a competitive marketplace for their company. They get when there are multiple buyers that they're likely to drive a little bit better deal. And I think that's probably true in my experience for the most part. However, there are some acquirers, if they feel like they're being a pawn in someone's beauty contest, they will walk away. Yep. They will say, we're not competing in, in some auction. Uh, let us know when you're ready to have a conversation with us. How do you at Republic's view competition? I love competition. Or competing I'm, for a deal. Yeah. I mean, I want them to make the right deal for them and we're going to make the right deal for us. So if it doesn't work out, no problem. I, there's no hard feelings, right? Like it goes back to the, you know, a lot of the partners at Republic's get mad at me when I talk someone out from selling. We're like, hey, dummy, like, why are you going to sell? Like you, you do this one little small change, you could double this. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't mind that at all. Um, actually, I think competition always is better for, you know, the seller too. Um, you know, I wish I had Let's, more, more um, things to go up against because uh, it would drive up the price and then see who's really interested. But it's also too, like, it's kind of like when you're bringing in an employee, an employee's not, your team member's not, going with the most amount of money is not always the right decision either. It's about 
kind of what feels good. Like that you should always listen to the voice, the voice inside your head. Uh, I mean, that's never going to turn you down. When you ignore the voice in your head, that's usually when you get in trouble. Like you can see it or talk to your significant other. I know um, my wife is a really good detector of BSers. Uh, she's only been tricked once uh, in the 25 years I've known her. Um, and I. Marrying your ass? Uh, I'm sorry? <laughs> Marrying your ass? The, yeah. Well, that's number two. That's right. Oh, oh that's number, that's number two. two. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Talk about and maybe share a story. It might help for people to kind of hear uh, a real life story. Of course, we'd have to anonymize it. But can you tell me a story about a time when you were initially interested in acquiring a business, but something happened during the course of your conversations that that made you want to walk away? Yeah, you know, it was. I remember this. We were talking to this one company, and it was all perfect. And then it was just. It was almost like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde um, when we started digging into some other questions. Well, hey, tell us more about this particular client. Because at the end of the day, we're buying your clients, right? You're, we're buying your team too. And it was just like a, I could just tell like we hit a nerve. And it goes back to my initial thing. Like we figured out they didn't believe in what we believed in. Um, and they were just doing it for the money. And the, it was basically, Later on, that, that company actually went out of business. It was like they're trying to sell us a ticking time bomb. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. So that when you say Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, in the initial outreach, they were effusive and happy and cooperative. Yeah. But then as soon as you started to dig in a little bit, they got super dependent. Yeah, they were just like, just give me my half, half the money. I don't care about anything else because they knew there was something that was going to blow up in her face. And they wanted to rush it. That's the other thing, right? Like, take your time. There's no need to rush. There's not. Like, a good deal is still going to be a good deal later on. Um, and the more time you have to think about it, the better. Like, I, a lot of times I'm an impulse buyer. I was just telling you about, <laughs> I bought a car. Um, kind of not much thought. I was like, oh, yeah, I want it. And then I, it just got towed away on a flatbed to the dealer. <laughs> yeah, got it. Okay. I want to share a couple of scenarios that I've heard uh, from people that have sold their companies uh, to, to organizations similar to Publix, where they're, in many cases, they're rolling a bit of equity or, or they're taking some of their proceeds in, in equity. And just get your reaction to sort of what advice you might give that founder yep. to avoid that scenario. So one scenario uh, is where the owner rolls equity. They are a minority shareholder in, in the larger organization and they get fired. The mm -hmm. management team, the ownership effectively, not the management team, the owners say, hey, I think this business will do better without you. Mm -hmm. Has that ever happened to you in yeah. your deals? And if so, kind of how did you handle it? Oh, yeah, um, it happens. Um, and we should have took our time a little bit more. And I think we could have probably walked away from that deal. Um, but it was in a competitive situation. We thought we had to move faster, but that's a lesson learned, um, you know, on that particular part. Um, usually 
look, you're, you have to, if you're selling, you have to be providing value and you have to know this going in. If you don't think you can provide value at the bigger company, you should already know that you're probably going to lead down this path and you should be okay with it if you, if you keep continuing, right? Because you told me you were at the plateau. Well, if you can't keep going, who do I need to become in order to stay with this company? It's going to outgrow you. And so you should have seen that coming, or now you should see this coming, but listening to this podcast. Um, so that's what I would say. And it would probably be better for them too, because it outgrew them, right? Like I've been fired from every single job I've ever had <laughs> other than the ones I create. Okay. And I used to have a hard time firing people until I realized, holy cow, when I got fired, they gave me the free, cause I was never a quitter. I never wanted to quit. That's the thing. But someone forced me out, which made me get to the next thing that, you know, was, was what I was designed for. Just to go back to your deal structure. So in the event that you had to fire a CEO of an agency that you acquired, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the equity they have in Republic it stays. remains there. Oh, yeah, it stays. Right? Yeah, yeah. You, you can't take that away. And, you know, what you got to think about is it's almost worth hiring you as a new position. Okay. You know, especially after, and you don't get fired unless you do something stupid right in the first six months because you're operating as, as you should, right? Mm-hmm. And then after that, we're going to say, this is exactly what we want from you. These are our expectations from you. Can you hit this? Yes. Okay. So there shouldn't be any surprise. Yeah. And the the other piece I wanted to ask about was specifically the earnout. So in the event that you agree to an earnout, it's not time-based. It's like whenever your company hits this number, you'll get the second tranche of payment. What happens to that in the event that you have to fire the CEO? There would probably be some time. I don't know this because it hasn't happened on this particular part, but I would guess, and I haven't, I'm not a lawyer too, right? I haven't looked at the legal documents, but I would guess at the termination, we would put like a time frame on it. If the business does this in the next year or something like this. Got it. Another thing that I hear a lot about in particular with sophisticated acquirers that have bought lots of businesses, the Republic, you guys have been, you know, built, uh, bought nine of them in the last two years, um, is retrading. So retrading for my listeners, I know you know what it is, Jason, but retrading is where, you know, you, you agree to buy a company, you guys say, look, we'll, we'll pay you five times, and you get into due diligence, you discover some things, and then you say, you know what, we can't pay five, but we'll pay four mm-hmm. times EBITDA. Um, when does retrading happen in your world? All and, the time. And what can people all the time? Yeah. Well, because look, we're going to ask initial questions in the very beginning. Where's your EBITDA? What's your reoccurring? That kind of stuff. And then what happens, right? Let's say I tell all of my businesses that we coach um, is always get paid in the, it, as far in advance as you possibly can. Like get the money when you can, right? But what does that do when we buy you? Well, you got paid for services that weren't rendered yet. So that's going to affect the purchase price come down. And you got to think whenever, whoever says the price first, like if a, if a seller 
says the price first, it's never going to go above that. I'm never offering you something above that, right? Now, the buyer is going to offer price. Well, it's most likely going to keep going down as we keep digging into the business because there's going to be things, oh, you didn't tell us this. So don't think from the letter of intent, that's the number you're going to get. It's always going to go down some. And what in your experience would be a, a normal amount to go down and what would be sort of extraordinary? I mean, it really depends. I mean, that's the cool thing about a letter of intent. It's just an intent and <laughs> there's no obligation either way. Right. So it's just like based on the overview of what you told me, here's what I value at. And are you, would you sell at this? That's all it is. Right. Um, I mean, I've seen them go down by half because then we're like, oh, wait, you told us you were getting paid, but you've never done, you know, like your your salary was 50,000. When if we had to bring in a CEO, we're going to pay you 300, 400. And then that took them from the over a million to under a million. Right. So that's a pretty significant drop. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those nefarious kind of uh, <laughs> elements that that I think I've described as both legitimate and illegitimate. Legitimate being you said X in 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 the front end part of the conversation, but during due diligence, you, you know, something else was revealed. Illegitimate being retrading simply because you can, because the owner is so you know committed to the deal. And and here's the other thing too, because what I always hate is when people get so committed to the deal that they feel that they can't back out, right? So what would be, let's say I've seen this happen. We, we haven't done this, but I've seen this in some of the agencies we've had in the mastermind in the past where they've gotten to the day before and then they had some retrading. They already told their team. They already started putting their idea of what they were gonna, stupid shit they were gonna buy. So they were already committed and then they took way less, right? Uh, because of something that came up last minute when what they should have done is just said, no, we're not, we're not going to do it. Yeah, well said. And if people wanted to reach out on social, what's the best platform to do that on? Instagram and LinkedIn is always the best. So just Jason Swank, just make sure I have a shirt on. I guess there was a personator on Instagram that was like going around like, He's from the Philippines, <laughs> nothing against Philippines, but he was like shirtless and like he had every like it was I was crazy. I was like, that's not me. <laughs> I'm a tall white okay. dude. <laughs> yeah. The clean version uh, right. of Instagram, if there is such a thing, yeah. and LinkedIn. And we'll put your uh, coordinates in the show notes at builtthesale.com. Jason, thanks for doing this again. Yep. Thanks for having me. And there you have it for today's episode with Jason and John. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, I'd encourage you to head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you'll have a chance to leave a rating and review. Or if that's too much work, simply share this episode out with a friend or colleague. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the definitions for some of the more technical terms that you might not be as familiar with, be sure to visit Jason's episode page over at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labatagla for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. 
To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and we'll talk to you again next week. 